Welcome back, everybody. I am super excited about this week's guest. With me this week is Gus Martin. He's currently working for Capcom, but he's got quite the history working with uh, Square Enix and EA as well. And he's here to talk about how he got involved in the industry, what he does. Um, And he talks about his experiences living and working in a couple of different video game markets. And I found his insight to be um, incredibly fascinating. (laughs) So without further ado, here is Gus Martin. seems like you've been all over the place because you're currently in Tokyo um, and I had to learn about actually oh Osaka I'm so sorry Um, I had to learn about Japanese time zones uh, Ah. (laughs) to to, to schedule the interview but you are where are you originally from I'm from Brazil Brazil okay and how did you get started working with computers I guess and how did you leverage that into working with games so it all began maybe what, today's 2018 or 18 or so years ago mm-hmm. when I was just a teenager and I got my hands on Quake 3, which was this cool game at the time, uh-huh. I feel old though. Uh, and I started making maps for it because it felt like a cool thing to do. So I just started modifying stuff, making some maps and saying, wow, this is pretty cool. <laughs> and that got me interested in game development, right? And uh, shortly after that, GTA 3 came out. I think it was around that time. And it was super awesome, you know, 3D, all those cars and stuff. And I turned to modeling because I want to see cooler cars inside the game. So I started modeling some some cars, putting them in the game. During Vice City, it was the heyday of modding. (laughs) It was amazing time. So many good people modeling stuff. So I put a ton of cars in the game. You can probably still find mostly Ferraris because, you know, you got to want to drive the cool car. After that, I thought, you know, I like games. I like designing stuff. So I should probably try to find my way into a career into games because that sounds like something interesting. So I went to school for product design because mm-hmm. in Brazil, we didn't have game design schools or anything of the sort. And at that time, programming wasn't something that I was super interested in. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to design stuff, right? So I do product design. It was some cool four years. I continue modeling stuff, doing 3D renders, made some money with that because, you know, architecture students need 3D renderings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was great because they didn't know how to do it, and I knew it. It was super easy, but, you know, that's how you make money. Do what you can. And uh, after that, I went to Vancouver Film School because, you know, I finished my game design, uh, my product design degree, but there were no real jobs in Brazil for game development. It was super in its infancy at the time. Mm -hmm. It was really non-existent. So I figured, okay, the number one lesson that I learned in game development is the same as the one for real estate, location, location, location. Mm -hmm. If you're not near a, a game development center, it will be pretty damn hard for you to get hired into the industry, right? So I went to Vancouver Film School, did the one-year degree there in uh, game design, 
that's when I really got my passion for programming going. At the time, we had Unity, which was starting up, getting great. Like, man, this is awesome. We had UDK. It wasn't even a real engine for yet, but we had UDK, <laughs> which was cool as well. So what was my luck around that time is that uh, because I had some knowledge of programming, a lot of knowledge in art and modeling and animation, that kind of stuff, there was a job opening at EA for a technical artist. I applied for it. One of my instructors knew some people there. They asked him if I was good. He said, yeah, he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. I got the interview. They liked me at the interview, and I got hired, and it was great. That's how I started off. Had you been outside of Brazil very much? Um... I had not. I had only been outside for two months going mm-hmm. to Sweden to study Swedish. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, the reason is, like, until that time in school, I was still thinking, man, I want to do game design or I want to do car design, which is, you know, cars, I love cars. Mm-hmm. So either one will be fine. So if I want to study car design, where's a good school? Ah, oh, in Sweden, there's a nice school there in Umeå, in the north, super cool. Like, okay, cool. I guess I'll go to Sweden, study some Swedish, you know, see how it is. Mm-hmm. And I went there, and what happened was, until that point, the schools were all free in the universities in Sweden. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, cool, it's going to be, you know, doable. And when I got there, they had just passed a law or something that, okay, they're free for European people. Well, that sucks. Man. Yeah, still, it was a fun time, two two months there. But, you know. And um, and when you got hired at EA, were you hired onto any particular projects or... So the way it works at EA Canada, mm-hmm. they have uh, the game teams, which are the teams with programmers and, and QA people and whatnot that work on specific games. And they had an art department called the Artworks. That's where we made the art for most of their sports games that we made in Canada. Okay. So over there, we, had, we were working on FIFA and we were working on NHL and UFC, which was a new release at the time as well. So I was hired on to art, Artworks to work... Uh, the pipelines for FIFA 14 at the time, automating the stuff for the the older consoles like the PS2, <laughs> the Wii, and uh, the Vita. It was some pretty cool times. And and the FIFA 14 was known for releasing, I think, on the widest range of systems at the time. <laughs> it was. It was right when the Xbox One and the PS4 were coming out, right? Uh-huh. So we had the dev kits there, and we couldn't tell anybody we had them, but they were there. People knew, but they didn't know. And it. And on my desk, I had I had an old CRT monitor so I could connect the PS2 to it. <laughs> the, the PS2 dev kit is amazing. It's massive. I was surprised at it. It was ridiculous. It dwarfed my PC tower because it was so big. <laughs> and so can you speak a little bit on the major differences between having to develop FIFA 14 for the PS2, 3, 4, Vita, <laughs> Wii? It was on the 360 and the 1. It was all over the place. It was. It was everywhere. But the reason that they could do that thing because the pipelines were so good. Can you talk a little bit more about the pipelines? Because I'm personally not super familiar with what that actually means. <laughs> so I, I can talk about the art side of this stuff. Because mm-hmm. on the programming side, I know a lot of the code for the older consoles wouldn't touch wouldn't touched much. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's old and no one wants things to blow up. Because there was tons and tons of lines of code in there. So <laughs> things get scary. 
But on the art side, the, the way it works is you make the asset for the best looking version of the game and then you just add it down to the lower versions. So the PS4 and the Xbox One will always get the best super resolution uniforms. And then we just pass that through our pipeline that edits all the assets to match the, the targets for the PS3, for the PS2, for the Wii, for whatever we needed. Gosh. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> was that the last game that you developed anything for the PS2 for? It was, and I think it was probably one of the last games developed for the PS2. I know that after that, I, th- I think they didn't release the FIFA, 14, FIFA 15 and so on for the PS2 anymore. I think that was one of the last games ever made for it, which was super cool. I, I, so at the time that that was coming out, I was in college working at a video game store. <laughs> and I very vividly remember we had our PS2 rack that had no new games on it. It was literally one double-sided cart and the front side was ps2 games and even at that time the other side was wii games and when we got in the fifa when we got in fifa 14 and we had those cellophane wrapped ps2 games i i didn't even know what to do and we had people like who didn't even realize that you could still buy new ps2 games anywhere (laughs) or at or at gamestop at all at that time that's the funny thing. Like in Brazil at that time, the PS2 was still a very big console. Really? And it stayed on until like a couple of years after that. We still had games released for the PS2. Most of them pirated, but they were still very, very popular. Huh? Can you speak for any reason as to why the the older consoles stayed more uh, popular in Brazil at the time? Is it? It's all about price, basically. Mm. When the PS3 came out, I remember I was still in university at that time. The PS3 in Brazil was costing the equivalent to $4,000, <laughs> which was insane. So, what? yeah, the PS2 had already been eight years old or something at the time, but it was cheap. You could buy one for $200 or so. And the PS3 was for rich people. It wasn't really available for the you know common people at the time. Was and that then Blu-ray the Blu-ray player. <laughs> Yeah, that was probably a big part of it. And we didn't really have like official distribution in Brazil at the time. Oh. So you only had to get things in the grayish market and they would charge what they could get away with, which was ridiculous. Wow. But for comparison, the Wii at the time was costing a thousand something dollars. So much cheaper. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. that's crazy. I guess I had never really thought about they're not being like official channels of distribution for how large is brazil is too yeah like wow it's it's if i if i'm not mistaken the reason why that is is because back in the 90s nintendo made a deal with one of the major electronic players in brazil so they had exclusive rights to release video games in brazil so their video games were cheaper the other ones were more expensive and even though that partnership ended 15 years ago the taxes that were made for it still in place. So if you want to sell a PS3 there, PS4 there, they will have that price hike because of taxes. Mm. Yeah, it's all a mess, but no. <laughs> wow. Do you think that that played a big part in um, but, or that Brazil being one example of, of why they continued to release games on the PlayStation 2 for as long as they did then? Oh, for sure. Brazil... I don't know, India, Russia, they all had still massive populations for PS2. But the thing is, the games were released, 
But as far as I know, most of the sales were for the pirated versions. So I don't, I don't know how much money people were making with that stuff. Oh, well, there you go. So, and you worked on um, the NHL series and the new, the budding UFC series as well, you said. Did you enjoy working on sports games? Yep, yeah. it was super cool. Because, like, I'm a pipelines kind of guy. I like seeing things working nicely, mm-hmm. going through the best possible way to get, you know, uh, the least uh, I don't know, friction possible. You know, I, I, in an ideal world, the artist would press a button and the asset would go through everything he has to go and go into the game and be done and beautiful. <laughs> so at EA at the time, and I'm pretty sure now even more than ever, the pipelines, the system that they had there were super amazing. It was great because I could learn so much from the people there, seeing how everything is done, all the processes, the way they think as well of getting things done. Mm-hmm. It was super great. And how long were you at EA for? I was there for a year. Okay. So EA is a really large company to get started working Mm. with um, for your first game dev job. Did you continue working for major AAA companies following your time at EA, or did you do any work with any smaller studios? I did some consulting stuff in between EA and my time at Square Enix. Mm -hmm. Uh, doing some development stuff, more advising stuff, but most of my time has been on AAA. What were the next major projects you worked on, or projects, I guess, of note to you that you worked on after working at EA? After working at EA, it would have to be Final Fantasy XV. Ooh, that game. After I finished my contract at EA, uh, I had met my now wife, and we decided, okay, where do we go next? Uh, Let's go to Japan, because, you know, just... (laughs) Your family's there. Let's just stay there for a little while, get things together and whatnot, and see how things go. Uh, and when I first arrived here, I got a job at the place called Active Gaming Media. They do localization work, so they wanted more development stuff being done. So they hired me in there as a systems designer, mm-hmm. which was an okay time. I spent six months there, but then I wanted something more challenging. And around that time, I was approached by Square Enix for a technical artist job. So like, okay, cool, let's do that. So I packed up and went to Tokyo and I said, okay, you're on the tools team, pipeline team, and your work, this is the, I don't know, advanced technology division inside Square Enix, which is where most of the foreigners were. Mm -hmm. And we were doing more of the work on development on the engine and arts and basically trying to take Square Enix to the next level in technology, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that was that was a major uh, aspect of 15's development. It, it seemed as if uh, changing technology was kind of a roadblock for them through the development because the process was so long and so much yeah. changed over the development. So you were kind of there to help facilitate that? Yeah. So I joined in near the end of the project. I spent maybe a year or so on it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the groundwork had been covered by some amazing people. But yeah, most of the challenge was was getting the game to really, really fit the vision of uh, Tabata-san, mm-hmm. the main director of the game, right? He really had this giant idea for what the game should be, what the game should look like, and uh, we need we wanted to make it our own our own engine. So we had a lot of challenges getting there and getting it to look right. And on my part, I was doing. Uh, I don't know, working with uh, animators, giving them tools to help them animate their stuff better. And work a little bit on pipelines as well to get the art into the game better, right? Faster and without as many errors. And uh, I was lucky as well to get there because the people that I work with, especially on the the tool side, they had already a lot of cool stuff done. So I was just getting in there and 
and helping them make it better and getting some load off of them so they could also do some other cool stuff as well. So with that position, I could not only work on 15, I worked a little bit on Dragon Quest 11. Oh. I'm, I'm on a special thanks in there. I was super surprised about that as well. Oh, my but gosh. Hey, you know, it's cool to see my name there. And uh, a little bit on Kingdom Hearts 2 at that time because, you know, they all used our tools for, mm-hmm. mod- for animation, for modeling. So we had to keep the systems up and running. And those are some huge titles to have, like, have your hands on, especially, um, especially Dragon Quest Eleven. Something <laughs> that's yeah. a particular series. People, people want so many things for that series here in the states. Yeah. So um, to to get to work on it firsthand yeah. over in Japan is amazing. So can you talk any more about um, getting to work on Kingdom Hearts Three? Um, I know that you said you did uh, like work with the AI in yep. that game. Yep. So after I was wrapping up the stuff on Final Fantasy 15, I got on another project there, which was a VR-based, manga-based stuff called Project Hikari. Mm-hmm. Now I think they're still developing it, which is super cool. But I, I got touching to touch uh, UE4 around that time, right? Mm-hmm. And then I expanded my role a little bit more. Instead of just being a technical artist, I was more of a generalist programmer. So I was prototyping the, the gameplay that the designer wanted. I was prototyping the pipeline in there, the building, all that kind of stuff which was nice because I could do a lot of different things. And near the end there, I wanted to, we wanted to go back here to, to Kansai, to Kyoto, Osaka area, because me and my wife were thinking about starting our family and whatnot, mm-hmm. so let's be close to her house. So I talked with my boss, say, hey, can you get me into Kingdom Hearts, transfer me there? I said, yeah, we'll work something out. So they sent me over here as an AI programmer because I started also learning some AI when I was in Tokyo. I had like... At uh, Square Enix at the time, we had some really amazing people for AI, too. The number one guy was Miyake-san. He's like the AI person here in Japan. That's mm-hmm. that's the guy. <laughs> he's he's everywhere in all kinds of books and stuff. Super awesome guy. I work with a guy called Eric, who's now at uh, Kojima Productions, I think. Mm-hmm. Also super smart guy. So I was really, really, like, lucky. I mean, terribly lucky. I don't know why. Huh, maybe something's going to happen. But... Uh, <laughs> But I was lucky to have amazing teachers there so I could just, you know, get in right with a good base and see what was, like, uh, what was good to, not what was, that sounds weird. Like, uh, what was the good way of doing AI? What were the main theories? What are the main stuff? It, the main challenge was having to learn things in Japanese and English. At the time, my Japanese wasn't so great, but Miyake-san made amazing effort to help me out. <laughs> and uh, they sent me over to Osaka, I got in there. I met everyone. It's super awesome studio as well. Lots of nice people there. I got to to be really close with Shibata-san, which was one of the main designers of the project. And uh, my job was mainly to work with him and translate his ideas for what the AI should do wow. into you know the proper AI scripts and stuff inside UE4. Wow! Super cool. Like all. all it, for me, it was awesome because I got to see a lot of the stuff that's now coming out mm-hmm. firsthand. Like, we had meetings to see the enemies that someone has scripted to see how they're going to attack, how they're going to do this. And then the, desi- the Shibata-san would give instructions to say, maybe she should do it this way or maybe she should do it that way. This guy should twist like this instead of twisting like that, blah, blah, blah. And then the next week, already being changed again, and we would have another meeting and sit down and stuff. Man, this is awesome. <laughs> super cool if you had to compare the the various roles you've played or you've had in um in these in development between ai um 
programming, technical art, what would you say the role you enjoy the most has been? And I know that that may be a hard question because there's probably, because those are all very, very different roles. And to me, it's amazing that you have been able to learn and fill so many roles in in the development process because they all play such different. They all play (sighs) differently, but uh, the way of thinking is very, very similar. When it comes to programming, once you get into the mindset of programming, then applying it to different areas, in my case, is just a matter of like getting the right context and that's it. Mm. So even when I was working on the VR project, I had to work on so many different things. Like I had to help out a little bit with the graphics rendering. I had to look into the engine to see how uh, things were changing so we can get the, the, the effects that we wanted. I had to look at how to automate the building system. I had to look at how to get the loading of the levels and stuff. I had to do profiling as well. It was all very different challenges, but... I think what really helped me as well is my background as a product designer. As a product designer, you learn very well to decompose the the challenge that you have at hand into smaller things that you can tackle one at a time Mm -hmm. and then come together as a whole in the end. Okay, here's the product, here's the project, here's the pipeline, here's the script. So all the roles that I've had so far had their own set of challenges and it's like the only answer that I can give you about what was my favorite role, I will tell you it will be my next role mm. because it will be a new set of challenges. It will be something different. It will be something amazing as well. And then when I'm through those challenges, the next one that comes up will be my favorite stuff as well. And so how long were you with Square? Uh, in total, around two years and a little bit. Okay. And what, what did you move on to after that? After that, I went to Capcom. Oh, you're making yeah. like the the rounds is what you've yeah. been making on the, the major companies. Yeah. Oh. They make me nice offers. You know what I'm going to say? No. <laughs> and and what, are you, what have you been doing with, uh, with Capcom? So Capcom right now is super cool role. So I'm an AI <laughs> programmer again, which is great. But again, just like at Square Enix in the beginning, I'm on the RE Engine team. We're the team that makes the engine that all our new stuff is being powered by, right? So my job there is making AI systems that the game teams can use to make their things better than they are now, to allow them to make better AI or faster AI or more interesting AI, right? Mm -hmm. So because of that, I get to pretty much touch all the projects that we're working on, which is great. We have so many cool things we're working on right now. It's awesome. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the projects you've you've been working on that you're able to talk about? So <laughs> you've seen our I know RE2 the remake and Devil May Cry 5, right? Mm-hmm. People lost their minds yeah, at the, the is, RE2 remake. <laughs> it's awesome. I loved it, you know. I played a lot of that at work trying to figure out some AI bugs and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Oh and, man. It's, it's looking amazing. I was surprised when I saw it the first time. It's looking really, really good. And that engine is, is – you're, so y'all are using the re-engine in the remakes and in newer titles? Yeah, on, on Devil May Cry 5 and on the, uh, on the remake for Resident Evil 2. Mm-hmm. And we also use it for Resident Evil 7, which was also a super cool game. <laughs> I was – sadly, I was a little bit after that game, so I couldn't get my hands on it. But, yeah, you know, oh well. <laughs> And so you've been, how long have you been in Japan now for then? 
Uh, just over four years and a half. Four, four and a half years. Oh, so you've been there for a good portion of, of your time then. Yeah. <laughs> Can you speak on, on the differences? Because you've got a really vast perspective on the video game industry. Being from Brazil, having mm-hmm. gotten education and working in Canada, and, and that's pretty much like working with the United States as well, I think, yeah. if you're working yeah. with Canada. And then yeah. in Japan, which it's, is its own video game market all um, yep. in its own right. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like The development here in Japan is mostly focused on the internal market, right? Some of the studios are more opening now to, to focusing on the Western markets, mm-hmm. but the priority has always been the Japanese domestic market. That's why, like, some JRPGs and stuff don't get sold abroad, but they get sold here because we're, we're making them for the internal market. Now, the main difference I would tell you about the industry in Japan and pretty much everywhere else in the world is stability. Here in Japan, you'll very, very, very rarely hear about layoffs and studios closing down and that kind of stuff because mm-hmm. they really take their times to make the game there is crunch and whatnot, but they take more, more patient approach to getting the game done. That's why Final Fantasy XV took so many years to get done. They wanted to get it done right. They didn't want to rush it out and have it done. You know, it's done, whatever, go ahead. No, no, let's make this the game that we wanted to make. Same with Kingdom Hearts 3, same with Dragon Quest, same with pretty much everything we're making right now. So working here, I feel a lot more safer, more stable. I know that I can stay at Capcom for the next 10 years, Nothing bad's going to happen. I'm going to continue working there. I don't have to worry about being fired. Same thing when I was working at Square Enix. I could stay there for as long as I wanted to stay there. It's a lot more stable environment. But if you look at U.S., Canada, even Europe, studios that don't perform very well, they're closed. They lay off people. Mm-hmm. They push them a lot, doing crunch and getting things done quickly. And, you know, it doesn't really work sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you're out of a job. So go look for the next one. But here in Japan, it, you're, if you get a job here, you get a job for life, basically. Wow. And an, another interesting aspect which really, really surprised me is that while in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe, it's really hard to break into the industry because they don't hire people without experience, right? You're not going to hire a junior designer that never designed anything, a junior programmer without a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. But here in Japan, we have a, the, the Shinsotsu system. Basically, when you're last year of university, you interview at companies and you apply at them. And if you pass their exam and whatnot, they will hire you the next year. So at Capcom, we just hired 30 people or so in this year, fresh out of university. They had never worked with games and, and stuff, but we got new programmers, we got new artists, and we, we fit them somewhere in the company, wherever we need them, and we train them, and they become programmers, they become better artists and whatnot. And the next year, we'll hire another 30 people straight off of university without experience, which is amazing to me because, you know, ideally, you would want people with experience so that you know they can hit the ground running mm-hmm. you don't have to waste a lot of time training them and whatnot but here in japan they do take the time to train them to get them up to speed you know to really grow the talent base so you're not stuck with uh, uh, a, a small group of the devs that can actually you know have experience since everyone is being hired every year all these new people there's always new talent there's always more people in the industry and they always accommodate Squanks does the same thing I think Nintendo always does the same thing mm-hmm. they have a very very hard process to get into that I remember reading about 
it's super hard to get a, a Nintendo in this route or any route, I guess. <laughs> so I believe it. And as for the 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 fan base of video games in Japan versus the United States, um, you were talking about how the companies like Square, um, with the case of Final Fantasy XV and Kingdom Hearts Three, those titles have been in the works and had been in the works for a very long time before they were actually released. Are the people, the, the consumers in Japan, are they as like angry and loud as uh, the American? I guess, yeah. I, I don't know if you like watch it around the time of E3 or I mean, anytime anything I, gets announced in the video, American video game market, you know, the fan base can really sway what companies decide to do. I remember reading about the Waluigi stuff or the <laughs> Super Smash Bros. And they're like, man, why why are you doing that guys if you man oh my god some people can be crazy but here in japan we do have fans like that like i'm not going to give details but there have been death threats sent before to studios so and you kind of take them seriously because you know people can be crazy sometimes mm -hmm. but you you do have people complaining on the social networks about it and it's not the same level as in the us i suppose but you do have that small amount of fans who are just crazy about the game and really, really want to see it and really want them to be perfect. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it's because I'm not so familiar with those, the social networks used here in Japan so much. So I don't really get to see that. I don't have visibility into that as, mm -hmm. as I would have on like Twitter or Facebook mm -hmm. or Reddit even. So, But yeah, you can bet we have some crazy people here too. <laughs> I was just thinking because I, I feel like the culture of games getting popped out quickly um, in my opinion I think a lot of companies are afraid of American video game consumers so they'd rather put a game out that needs like giant day one patches or you know gets its first DLC six months mm. later that really balances the game in a way that it should have been balanced prior to launching um, and I, I guess in my experience with games that come from uh, developers that are in Japan um, that's just typically not hasn't been the case yeah we do try to take the time to get things done right mm -hmm. we still do have some crunch like I remember for the demo that we released for Final Fantasy 15 there was a lot of crunch people were staying at work until 11 12 some people were sleeping at the job as well because you know they really want to get this thing good mm -hmm. they didn't do that because of bad management and whatnot. They did that because they wanted the game to be good, the game, the game to work well. So we do try to take more time to get quality out there and try to get things less less buggy as possible. Because also here in Japan, like the main companies here, like Capcom, like Square Enix, they're their own publishers, right? Mm -hmm. So they have that uh, leeway of, okay, let's delay this for a little bit. You know, it's our product anyway. It's our money anyway. So we can take things slowly. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. It really helps. Yeah. Perfect. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to mention um, before we wrap up? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Those open-ended questions are the, are the most difficult ones. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I was just, I always like to ask just in case there was something I didn't get around to asking. Um, so because... What I can say is, like, for people looking to to work in the game industry, it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of, you know, long days and not much reward. And, you know, 
being overworked at times and sometimes it's difficult to see the end like the end road of what will this game be or how would this game become but it's it's nice i like it i got opportunities to work at uh, at other industries as an ai programmer but between that and games just games is just so much more interesting the stuff that I, yeah the stuff that i'm working on it's super cool like making this ai smarter for this game so now this ai can see the world can have a knowledge about the world can understand it can ask questions of it when making decisions about where to go what to do how to best pursue the player and that wouldn't be the same challenge that i would have in any other industry right one of my friends was working as an animator at square enix he was also working on this paper for doing i forget the exact terms but the way that he found for animating a better look at for this massive snake monster in the game (laughs) how it all worked out and, and getting to act like a proper snake and like man that's super cool and you will never have that kind of chance in any other industry but you know, the, but one of the things that really helped me as well is to not be an asshole. I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> because, like, uh, for so for example, for my first job at at EA, I interviewed there. It was nice. People there are super lovely, and I got the job. But then when we were all friends and whatnot, they told me like, yeah, we had people who were better qualified than you were, but you were the one that better. You know, gelled with the team that better matched our personalities, so we took a chance on you, and it worked out. Like, great, happy to hear that. Same thing at Square Enix; they they had more experienced people who spoke better Japanese, but the boss man said something. Yeah, there's something about you, you know, you you yeah, there's a connection there. Like, okay, awesome. So, don't be an asshole. <laughs> Industry is super small. People talk. We know everything. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this guy, yeah, don't hire him. He's an asshole. <laughs> but this guy, this guy is pretty cool. He doesn't know much, but he can learn. And you'll have to learn a lot on the job as well. I'm having to learn a lot right now at Capcom. I had like, I had work with C++ a, a, a bit mm-hmm. before, but now it's all C++. So I had to really, you know, cool. Let's sit down and look up things and Stack Overflow for life, and just do what we can. So if you have the mindset to keep learning, to not be an asshole, be nice to people, and just have the hunger to you know, do cool stuff, you'll find a place in the game industry. I love it. That's perfect. I mean, one of those things that I've noticed in chatting with people who have worked within the industry in many areas, you know, since the 80s up until now, the technology is forever changing. There's no stability in in, in what the standards are for programs or engines or and so you really do need to be open to continual learning. Um, There's never a point where you say, okay, this is the best we can do. No, it's not. There's always something else. Oh, look, now this new, someone in, I don't know, in China came up with this paper about better graphics rendering for ray tracing, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we got to have that now. Let's put that in our game. Let's make it happen in our game. It's in there. What's the next step? Oh, this other guy made a molecular rendering. Okay, we have to have that. So keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me, though. I know. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll have show notes for today's episode up on cakebites.com. Don't forget to like and follow the show on social media so you can keep up with updates as well as on Twitch so you can get updates when I finally go live. And yeah, I think that's everything. See y'all next time. 
Have you ever been reading through a stack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Sarkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on the comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. So whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.